Welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. The title of this mini-series within The Quest is The Spiritual Crisis of Our Time. In episode 63 of this season, season 2, I went over some of the arguments for the existence of God. I also focused on the argument that the materialist worldview was unable to explain the mechanisms by which life, consciousness and higher consciousness arose. And this constituted, as it were, an elephant in the room of science. The episode ended, however, by pointing out that rational arguments went round in endless circles on these questions, and analytic logic was not capable of explaining core questions of existence. No matter what the evidence presented, the materialist worldview and the alternative worldview would bounce the argument back and forth forever like a game of ping-pong. For example, the alternative worldview can present the evidence that, firstly, the chances of life on Earth emerging are almost impossible, so some other explanation outside the laws of science, as we currently understand them, is required. And secondly, the universe is fine-tuned for life and consciousness, so how can life, consciousness and higher consciousness be an accident? The materialist worldview replies with the anthropic principle, you may remember, that no matter what the odds against planetary life evolving in any single planet, put it at a million or a billion to one against, there are so many billions of stars in our galaxy with their attendant planets, and there are so many billions of galaxies that statistically life and consciousness will emerge. And naturally, since we are sentient beings, it must have emerged on our planet for us to be talking about it. This is called the anthropic principle. Secondly, having stalled the opposition, it answers in a similar vein on the fine-tuning of the universe. Well, it says, string theory suggests there are infinite universes. Therefore, there must be some which are fine-tuned for life and consciousness. And naturally ours must be one of them, since here we are talking about it. While the first argument of the materialist worldview concerning the statistical inevitability of planetary life in the cosmos has some leverage, the second similar anthropic principle concerning the fine-tuning of the universe sounds absurd and even self-defeating. To assume, according to unproven string theory, that there are infinite universes, as if ours wasn't infinite enough to be getting on with, is to reach deeper into metaphysics than any theory has done before. To try to prove that we live in a materialist universe governed by materialist laws of physics and chemistry. Clearly, such arguments could go on forever, entertaining though they obviously are. Therefore, although I am partial towards the metaphysical and cosmological arguments of the alternative worldview, towards the end of episode 63, I move towards the realm of personal experience, suggesting that it is only by visionary experience that one can find any real conviction. This is what Jung meant when he said that he knew God existed, rather than just believing it. He was speaking from his personal gnosis, that is, knowledge, revelation, his visionary experiences, which he took for totally real. I decided in these episodes not to cite the experience of others, since there is already a growing literature on the subject. I decided to present my own. At least I could talk of them with some authenticity. Indeed, with respect to personal experience, in episode 14 of season 2, titled Initiation and Gnosis, A Personal Experience, 
I outlined my experiences in the Pyrenees and the Atlas Mountains. In episode 45, called Conflict in the Collective and the Search for Metaphysical Truth, I mentioned how spiritual transformation begins with individuals. In episode 58, Spiritual Crisis of Our Time, Collective and Individual Dimensions of This Crisis, I gave, firstly, more information on the Mount Tupacal experience in the Atlas Mountains, my metaphysical beliefs, and my experience working with clients, and particularly the encounter with healing intelligence, the archetypal world, and the core archetype of the self. At the end of episode 63, I cited the Hindu parable of the elephant in the room and the blindfolded counsellors of the prince brought in to identify it. I suggested that the elephant in the room is ultimately a crisis of the self, big S. In episode 64, I followed Jung's suggestion that our conception of self, big S, was entangled with the notion of God. To clarify, when Jungian analysts like myself refer to self, big S, this does not mean our self-image, small s, or our self-identity, small s, which may be thought of as our ego identity. The self, for a Jungian, is the central archetype of order in the psyche and is infinitely greater than ego consciousness. The self includes ego consciousness and the unconscious, and the unconscious for Jung was ultimately infinite. The self is both the totality of the psyche and its centre. It is an inner archetype of meaning and frequently corrects our conscious attitude, pushing it towards individuation, greater development and wholeness. For example, dramatic or recurring dreams that reorientate the conscious attitude of the subject, giving a new sense of meaning, almost always come from the self. What distinguishes Jungian therapy is its emphasis on moving the centre of personality away from the ego self, small s, to the self, big S. To return to the theme of my explaining the point of these current episodes, the metaphysical and ethical views that are given of origins, becoming, human nature, the nature of good and evil, the path of the search for the soul, and so on, and which occupy the chapters of The Sower and the Seed, are the later, more conscious exposition of the original Gnosis experience. They derive from the archetypal source in that experience. They feed from that light. But they are elaborated by intellect and consciousness and therefore enter into the age one lives in. Individuals can partake of that original light to the extent of the potential for light within themselves. The views that I am giving and the style in which they are expressed belong to that experience and visionary state. They are not meant to represent objective truth. If asked why did I want to elaborate it and express it at all, something I ask myself frequently, the answer was always the same. It wants to be expressed. I have little investment in how it is received. It wants to have form, to live in the best way possible through the individual who experiences it. It seems to have always been here, in our human consciousness. I recall a Gnostic saying of the Redeemer, In that world of darkness I dwelt thousands of myriads of years, and nobody knew of me that I was there. Year upon year, and generation upon generation, I was there, and they did not know of me that I dwelt in their world. So in the last episode, I considered origins, and in this I ponder becoming. Piece by piece, this will assume 
metaphysical coherence. The cosmos undergoes eternal cycles of creation and dissolution. The world and all its life forms have evolved, but its intelligence or spirit is coexistent with matter and is imminent in this evolution. The original oneness is beyond all existence, but in its unfolding contains the matter, energy, intelligence and spirit of the whole universe. The original cosmic singularity precedes time, causality, mass and space, and yet is the origin and determiner of all things, the potentiator of our universe, which from the beginning to end of its cycle is an evolving drama of creation and destruction. The impulsion towards higher order, seeded into the cosmos, produces life forms throughout the universe that evolve ever greater degrees of complexity. These in turn are subject to dissolution. The notion of the evolution of the universe, the earth and life, is now undeniable, but it is by no means the whole story. In its current state, the theory of evolution neglects the inherent intelligence or spirit coexistent with matter that lies in the cosmos and in life. Thus, spirit is imminent within matter and evolution. The vehicle of this becoming is an eternal cycle of creative destruction through which higher degrees of intelligence evolve and disintegrate. This view contrasts with the narrow materialist belief that intelligence, life and consciousness are incidental rather than inherent to the cosmos. It also contrasts with the religious belief of some in a transcendent God who, as creator of the universe, is somehow outside of creation. The view of immanence expressed here is that intelligence or spirit is within creation and is manifested in its development. Evolving intelligence is its expression. It was commonly believed, up to the recent past, that the Earth was the centre of the solar and stellar system, that there was a constancy in the heavens and Earth, and that this staggering complexity resulted as an act of creation by God. With no idea of the age of the Earth, there were also serious propositions in the 17th century that it was created in 4004 BC. That was by Bishop Usher in 1650, who counterbacked the lineage in the Old Testament. Similarly, in many religions, humans believed they were unique and different, the chosen of God, that their reason and consciousness, the gift of a creator, distinguished them from all creatures, making them masters. Just as the earth was centre of the universe, mankind was the raison d'etre of creation. The paradigm change in our cosmology and psychology has been revolutionary. In the 20th century, ego intelligence was displaced from its supposed central position and was to revolve around the unconscious. The story of evolution is now established and ego intelligence, moreover, is no longer the exclusive feature of Homo sapiens, 
but actually preceded them in the Homo lineage, for example by Homo neanderthalis and Homo erectus and others. Primate intelligence is also far more advanced than previously thought. Indeed, self-consciousness, the previously supposed exclusive property of humans, exists in certain primates and probably other animals. The conclusion is inescapable. Advanced intelligence and even self-consciousness developed in evolution in various animals and hominids. Homo sapiens is its inheritor. Intelligence is not exclusive to any species, even our own. It is rather inherent within evolution itself. While the precursors of our consciousness lie in our animal and hominid evolutionary past, its origins are in the intelligence of life itself, and beyond that in the intelligence of the cosmos. This viewpoint requires a paradigm shift away from a dead and mechanistic universe in which the emergence of life and consciousness are accidents. The alternative vision is that the cosmos is intelligence or spirit itself and has an ordering principle or logos. Matter is no longer primary but coexistent with spirit. Intelligence precedes Homo sapiens primates and indeed all life forms. It is woven into the cosmos and the emergence of life and consciousness are the expression of it as indeed is its evolution into higher forms. Plato almost two and a half thousand years ago proclaimed that the cosmos is alive. The Stoics thousands of years ago like the Hindus realized that the cosmos has a vast intelligence, and that we are a reflection of it. On the subject of the Logos, the Greek and Roman Stoics, from the 5th century before the Common Era, up to the 5th century of the Common Era, that is, for a thousand years, used the concept of the Logos. At first it referred to the animating essence of the universe. Heraclitus, around 500 years before the Common Era, used the term Logos for a principle of order and knowledge. Later, the Gospel of St John names Logos, translated as the Word, but also associated with light, as the divine. Quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness overcame it not. That's New Testament, John, verses 1 to 5. It's quite clear that John was influenced by the Greek traditions. Neoplatonic philosophy, as the Greek tradition, found its way into Christianity. There are numerous other references to the concept of Logos, chiefly in Greek and Latin philosophy. Stoicism was as much a philosophy as a religion, and referred to some overarching harmony of the cosmos, which mankind might contemplate or even imitate. 
It was believed that the universe had an animating principle, and this was also in human beings. So, at first the Logos was a way of participating in nature and the cosmos. Admittedly, it was largely used by the Roman and Greek upper classes and the intelligentsia, so its use was limited, unlike Gnosticism and Christianity, which flourished among the downtrodden and oppressed, who after all were the vast majority and could not quite see the harmony in the heavens that was supposed to be reflected in that of society and of the individual. The term Logos often has an intellectual, rational implication, but it's not just a rational function. It does have the implication that the intelligence of the universe is somehow reflected in our psyche, as the Stoics believed, that the microcosm in us is a reflection of the macrocosm, as it were, in the cosmos, as above, so below. While it is tempting to think the term means reason, and that the universe is constructed on rational principles, and so too is the human mind, we can see by the use John makes of it in his Gospel that Logos does not really refer to reason. It is something far broader than that. It is the light of the world. Everything has been created by it. Likewise, Plotinus, the 3rd century Egyptian Roman Neoplatonic mystic, interpreted Logos as the principle of meditation or contemplation, the relationship between the soul, the intellect and the one. The one, being beyond all attributes, including being and not being, is the source of the world. The less perfect of necessity emanates from the more perfect. Thus, all of creation emanates from the one in succeeding stages of lesser and lesser perfection. These stages are not temporarily isolated but occur throughout time as a constant process. The one is not just a rational idea but something that can be mystically experienced, something beyond the multiplicity of this world. Referring to the meditator and the one, Plotinus says, Quote, we ought not even to say that he will see, but he will be that which he sees. If indeed it is possible any longer to distinguish between seer and seen, and not boldly to affirm that the two are one. It is also true that the Logos, the word in John's Gospel, was increasingly associated with a masculine emphasis, as you have just heard in the quotation from John's Gospel. This reflects the historical movements of the time, certainly in Judaism, and also in the later development in ancient Greece, by which a masculine principle became the dominant orientation and the female became repressed. One sees this clearly in the mythologies of Greece, so many of which had male heroes battling against the forces of nature, which are variations on the theme of the battle with the Great Mother, who is embodied in nature, animals or our own animal nature, or elementary, primal, frightening aspects of the female. One thinks of Theseus and the Minotaur at the centre of the labyrinth, half bull, half man, or Perseus and the Medusa, the three monstrous female gorgons that he beheads, or Hercules and the twelve labours he performed 
many of which involve slaying or capturing ferocious animals or stealing from the great feminine. All these animals in Herculean labours are symbolisms of the great mother, the Nemean lion, the nine-headed hydra, the golden hind of Artemis, the Erymantian wild boar, the Stymphalian birds, the Cretan bull, the mares of Diomedes, obtaining the girdle of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, obtaining the cattle of the monster Geryon, stealing the apples of the Hesperides, and capturing and bringing back Cerebus, the vicious dog guarding the gates of Hades. Greek patriarchal consciousness fights out in its mythological representations, a battle as it breaks from the Great Mother. Contemporary consciousness in the Western world has become super sensitive to these gender issues. It might be useful in our times to think of masculine and feminine orientations to consciousness as not applying to real-life men and women, but rather referring to consciousness itself. After all, once we take away the gender stereotyping and social pressures connected to it, we realise a woman can be as intellectual, rational and scientific as a man, and a man can be just as emotional as a woman. But there were reasons for that specialisation of role and work and divisions of human consciousness, Men think and do in this way and women in another. And these were to do with our survival. When the underlying survival, technological and economic conditions have changed, as they have done today, so too are the gender specifications that were built on top of them. More importantly, Eric Neumann in The History and Development of Consciousness makes clear that we are dealing with whole stages of cultural evolution, for example, from the Great Mother to the Patriarchy. Once this is grasped, it is easy to imagine that we are now at the end of one great cycle and about to begin another. However, history has a knack of being very surprising. It may not be a return to the feminine or an alchemical sacred marriage of the male and the female that is in front of us, but the opposite, the destruction of gender relations and the enthronement of artificial intelligence as the new paradigm. More of this in future podcasts. Back to the Logos. Although the concept became increasingly used with a rational and masculine emphasis, it did not start out this way when it was the animating spirit of the universe. Neither did it finish that way with Plotinus, who also uses this animating spirit idea. If you wish to hear some poems on this subject, and which contain the feelings of what I am trying to communicate, You may listen to season two, you're now in season two, if you go back to episode 36, which is a poem to the Logos, and to season two, episode 32, which is a poem to the Great Mother, in this case, the Egyptian Isis. These poems are fresh in the spirit and are contemplations and visions of this subject matter. These two poems are at the end of the above two podcasts, typically in the last 10 minutes of the episode. The reason why I'm referring to the poetry is that analytical logic can only get so far on these topics. One has to experience them in some way and not just intellectualise about them. Contemporary consciousness has become especially tuned and sensitive also to the cosmos. The Stoics could only gaze at the night sky. NASA is currently sending a telescope in January 2022 
to a point in space where it will look into the farthest reaches of the universe. Only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang itself. Other telescopes are trying to find traces of life on far distant planets. The Kepler telescope has found 2,600 exoplanets since 2009. And actually one was spotted very recently in September 2021 that has water and hydrogen in the atmosphere. That particular planet is 110 light years away. Other earthbound instruments such as those of SETI that is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, scan the skies for signals of a non-Earth intelligence. If the James Webb, using the latest infrared technology and situated in space, does find signals of extraterrestrial intelligence, then the electrifying impact of this and its consequences are incalculable. As we saw in the last episode, astronomers such as Martin Rees have informed us that the cosmos appears as if fashioned, fine-tuned mathematically for the emergence of life and therefore consciousness. Despite the immense knowledge we possess, we stand amazed, awed and baffled at what we are observing and what we are part of, a bit like the councillors with their blindfolds on in front of the elephant. Never has there been a better time, however, for the reappearance of the Logos as the animating essence of the universe. This is not something outside of ourselves, for the observed and the observer are entangled, as Plotinus so acutely observed. So far then, the following distinctions are therefore made. The material world is manifested and arises from a deeper source than is apparent to our immediate reason, consciousness or senses. Such a proposition is not simply mysticism, although it certainly includes that, but is a possible inference from relativity and quantum theory, where the world of matter, space, time and causation, typical of the worldview of classical physics, dissolves and is replaced by an immensely dynamic and powerful interconnected field. For example, see David Bohm, Wholeness and the Implicate Order, published in 1980, and Fritjof Capra, The Tower of Physics, an exploration of the parallels between modern physics and Eastern mysticism, published in 1975. Intelligence lies in the cosmos, in nature and in all life forms. It pre-exists consciousness, which is a later development within life forms. Just as higher degrees of order and intelligence evolved on Earth, so they evolve throughout the universe. As the Hindus intuited thousands of years ago, for example in the Rig Veda, the Bhagavata Purana, there are countless universes following one another. Therefore, on the macro scale, one may think of time as cyclical, with intelligence and evolution in a perpetual cycle of creation and destruction. Linear evolution leading to one absolute and final goal, does not fit with the circular viewpoint. Intelligence does not evolve de novum, fresh and original, out of evolution. Rather, it is built into the cosmos eternally, has repeatedly arisen in previous universes, and is teeming throughout the current one. 
Intelligence is neither an end point of evolution or external to life or the gift of a personal God or accidental. It is part of the fabric of nature and evolves into ever higher degrees of order before dissolution followed by more order and dissolution. Consciousness is concentrated intelligence in the brains of creatures, promoting their survival and evolving and manifesting from the inherent intelligence within nature. Self-awareness is the further development of consciousness, particularly characterising human beings, but not exclusively, because it began to evolve in other species in the Homo lineage, as well as existing to a limited, though definite extent, in certain animals, especially primates. It is the capacity of intelligence to examine itself. Higher consciousness is transcendent awareness and symbolic communication over and above survival and ego needs. The self is an inner directing function of order, growth and individuation in the human psyche and is a deeper consciousness and intelligence than that of the ego and its associated cognitive understanding. The self is an expression of the integrative wholeness that underlies our bodies and nature. This central ordering principle within the human psyche is a development of the natural ordering process in the cosmos and is evident in all life forms. From a materialist view, human consciousness is ultimately inexplicable. From the metaphysical perspective of imminence, it is quite different. Human consciousness is the living spirit of the universe.